So good morning. Uh, happy fifth day of Christmas. Do you know that Christmas isn't over yet? We're just, uh, the 25th is just the first day. We're still in the 12 days of Christmas. So hope you're still in that celebration mood. Um, I'm Dawn Anderson, as you've heard. I'm an associate pastor here at Lover's Lane. And for those of you that know me, you know that I'm involved in a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. I've got some of my peeps here. Rafe plays for us in Celebrate Recovery. Um, and if you don't know anything about CR, it's a 12-step recovery program, but it's not just for people with addictions. It's uh, for anybody, uh, hurts, hang-ups, habits, anything we struggle with in life, anything that keeps us from being the people that God created us to be. So I'm just going to do a little commercial there if you ever want to come visit us. Uh, we have worship services every Tuesday here in Ship Chapel. And instead of sermons, we alternate lessons based on the 12 steps with people giving their testimonies. Uh, so basically, the format of a testimony is you tell about the old me, you tell about how you found God, and then you tell about the new me that you were transformed into after your encounter with God. Testimonies are so powerful that I've been really encouraging Dee Dee and some of the other pastors here at Lover's Lane to think about having some testimonies in our church services uh, but for me today, it's kind of a case of be careful what you ask for because <laughs> Dee Dee said, well, how about your testimony? So that's what you're going to be hearing today. Um, and I did want to kind of give a warning to parents. Uh, this is kind of PG-13 through the middle, so uh, it differs in a sermon that way because I'm going to be talking about some real stuff in life, some real adult situations. Um, and I love testimonies because I think everybody has one, right? Everybody in this room has a testimony. And if nothing else happens um, as a result of mine today, I hope that you will think about um, how you can tell your testimony, how you can put your story into words. Um, I want to start by reading a scripture from 2 Corinthians. It's a writing from the Apostle Paul, and I consider this to be my life verse. Uh, and as I tell my story, I think you'll see why. Um, I think we're going to have the words up on the screen, hopefully. Yes, would you stand as you're able to um, hear the gospel? 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with God's comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We are confident that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in the comfort God gives us. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So to talk about the old me, I'm going to start at the very beginning. I was born June 3rd, 1956 in Kansas City, Missouri. I think we have a picture. Yes, there I am. My dad was a Methodist pastor. My mom was a teacher. They were wonderful parents. They had met when my dad pastored my mother's rural church, and I was their first child. This is a baby picture that was taken on my baptism day. The first years of my life were full of my dad's church moves and sibling additions. I think I have a toddler picture now, you know, me with cats. I still love cats. I've got two of them. <laughs> uh, by the time I was 12, I had five little sisters, and we had moved four times. 
I am grateful now to have so many sisters, but as a child, I think I suffered from not having enough parent attention, and I took out my frustration sometimes on my sisters by being a bully. I know it's hard to believe now, but um, in the 12-step program, we also make amends, and I've made amends to my sisters, and I'm proud to say they've forgiven me, I think. I think. <laughs> okay, so um, there's a picture of us. That's at my dad's church when I was, I think, probably about... 14, something like that. But my first traumatic experience in my life was at age four. My trusting parents left me all by myself at a hospital prior to getting my tonsils out, and I was abused by a doctor during the night. I wasn't able to put the incident into words until I was much older, and I processed the, the experience with a counselor. But I've often wondered how that experience uh, affected my future relationships, especially with men that you'll be hearing about. And I know it contributed to my personal anxiety. Um, I also, though, had my first deep spiritual experience around the same age. I suffered from night terrors as a little girl, and one night when I was feeling terrified and I couldn't sleep, I experienced a vision of a beautiful angel who appeared outside my bedroom window and communicated with me, not with words, but telepathically, something like, it's okay, I'm watching you go back to sleep. And I remember crawling back into bed and having the most peaceful, wonderful peace um, that I can't even really put into words, but I've carried it through to my adult life in moments of trauma. And I love angels now, I, I collect them. Well, actually, I kind of stopped collecting them because I got too many, but I still have a lot. <laughs> but this trauma and comfort theme from my childhood would be repeated in my life. I made good grades in school, but I was shy, especially with boys. I didn't go on a date until I was in college when I met a pretty wild guy named Bob. And I met him at church, ironically. <laughs> Bob was a Marine who had just returned from Vietnam. Our dating was an emotional roller coaster ride, and we got married when I was just 20. I was a very young 20. There were lots of danger signs about Bob, but he was the first guy who ever really paid me much attention. And I was so in love, and I was so naive. Anyone been there? <laughs> so I think we have a picture of my first marriage there. I realize now I was codependent. In other words, my own thoughts and feelings were so focused on Bob that I ignored my own needs and enabled behavior on his part that no self-respecting individual should ever allow. For instance, Bob told me on our honeymoon, on our honeymoon, he didn't think he could stay faithful. And he didn't. Uh, looking back through the eyes of reality, I believe he probably cheated on me constantly from the time we started dating until we finally divorced. But I was in deep denial and made excuses for him in my own mind and to others. I really believed that if I just loved him enough, he would change. It was all my fault he was cheating, right? Although we were married from 1977 to 1983, we were probably only together a couple years out of that time. Bob would go on drinking binges and disappear for weeks at a time, and we had multiple long separations. But in the midst of all the marital chaos, I finished college in three years with my BA in psychology, and I worked full-time as an intake worker for a social service agency. I thought I might want to be a counselor someday. During one of our on times, Bob convinced me to move to Dallas, which is how I got here. But once I got away from my family and my dad, I stopped going to church. I still believed in God, but I just didn't see that God really cared that much about me or had that much to do with my life. 
In other words, God was a concept to me, not a relationship. My God was named Bob, and my world revolved around him. In 1981, our son Casey was born, and Bob pretty much disappeared out of both of our lives. So there's, there's a picture of me as a single mom with Casey. Although I'd begun work on a master's degree, when I became a single mother without child support, financial and mothering considerations put graduate school on hold. Thankfully, by now I had a good job as a supervisor at a law firm, and although I hadn't lost the desire to be a counselor, I felt totally inadequate to help other people with their problems. For heaven's sakes, my own personal life was quite a mess, and it wasn't going to get better anytime soon. In typical codependent fashion, a mere six months after Bob's final exit from my life, I became involved romantically with a coworker named David Anderson. He seemed so different from Bob. He was passionate and romantic. And obviously, I had not had time to recover emotionally from my first marriage, and I didn't take any time to heal between the two relationships. So I plunged headlong into a second marriage without any thought of what God's will for my life might be. Now, codependence, if you don't know anything about us, <laughs> we're addicted to people. I had just exchanged my addiction to Bob for another unhealthy addiction to David. I had married the first and second guys I ever dated and even overlapped with the new relationship before the old one officially ended. Not a good plan. I really try to encourage people in divorce care now not to do that. <laughs> so David adopted Casey, and our son Skylar was born in 1988 when Casey was seven. Right from Skylar's birth, Casey loved being a big brother, and Skylar adored him too. They're very different in personality, but they've always been close, and I adore them both, and I'm so proud of them. <laughs> to the outside world, we probably looked like a successful and happy family. We had a big house and nice cars. David and I ran two businesses together, a legal placement agency and a word processing service, which were demanding. Family life was also challenging, and I learned to operate in a superficial survival mode without a lot of thought about my former career goals or spiritual matters. David had been abused as a child, and after our marriage, he became increasingly more controlling and abusive with Casey and me, mostly verbally, but too often physically. David had brutal mood swings, which became more and more frequent. I think now, looking back with the knowledge I have now, he was probably either bipolar or had a borderline personality disorder. But whatever was wrong, it definitely got worse as time went on or at least he stopped trying to hide it as much as he had pretty much done in our dating period. I remember David hitting me for the first time when Skylar was a baby. He gave me a black eye while I was holding Skylar. I really thought it was just a one-time thing because David was so sorry. But later I got another black eye when David was frustrated about losing our car in the parking lot at the airport. He destroyed my office in a fit of rage and threw a meal I had just cooked him against the wall in a fit of anger. Just as some examples. Um, I had him arrested once for shoving me and taking away my car keys, but then I bailed him out and dropped the charges. Probably the worst abuse I experienced was the time David pushed me down the concrete stairs at the back of our house. I could have broken my neck or even been killed with that one. But also, sadly, David also gave Casey abusive spankings that were way out of proportion to, to the offense. And sometimes he went off on customers at our businesses. 
David's rages were scary. I knew they occurred in situations where he felt out of control, so I tried to watch for those, but I couldn't seem to predict or prevent what would set him off. I learned to make excuses for him, lie for him, and I fought desperately to hold on to my plummeting self-esteem when he berated me. David would always stage dramatic apologies after these incidents and promise to change. I think he really meant it, too, at the time, but that didn't take away my emotional pain. I started living in fear of the next outburst, and my love for him started to fade. It's hard to love someone you're afraid of. One particular abuse stands out because I finally cried out to God. On a drive to Kansas City to see my family, David punched me hard in the nose. I pulled the car over, got down on my knees in a field by the highway. With blood and tears running down my face, I cried out to God, God, help me get out of this abusive marriage. I know God heard that prayer, but it would still be a few more years before I was brave enough to receive God's answer. Despite the abuse, I kept rationalizing, telling myself, well, at least he's faithful. Then, (laughs) about a year after Schuyler's birth, I found out that David had been having random sex with strangers, and to make it worse, had become HIV positive. It was a scary time, but tests soon showed that Schuyler and I were not affected. I began to wonder if God might have protected us for some reason. I started praying more and asking for God's help in my life. I stayed with David three years after the HIV diagnosis, trying to be an understanding and forgiving wife. I still was taking responsibility for his unhappiness and blaming myself for not being the wife that he needed. But in December of 1991, I decided to pull out all the stops. We'd had so many problems going to my family for Christmas because I think he felt so out of control there. So I just decided that Christmas I was going to just absolutely shower him with love, just giving him all the attention. Thinking about now, it almost makes me sick. (laughs) But despite all this, um, he was horribly abusive again. And I think I decided uh, that was it. A light went off in my head. I finally realized that David's behavior had little to do with me. And I let go of thinking I had some kind of power or responsibility to control his fits of rage. This was a major victory in changing my previous codependent way of thinking. So I moved out with my boys in early 1992 to an apartment, originally with the intention of just being separated and working on our marriage. I still had not quite lost hope, believe it or not. But 1992 is what I think of now as the year of stalking. Although David became involved with another woman literally the week after I moved out, He started a campaign to try to get me back, which included breaking into my car, supposedly leaving me a gift, calling me constantly, writing notes, sending flowers, leaving presents on my doorstep, etc. It didn't feel flattering to me. It was scary to see how desperate he was. And the abuse continued at the office where I found out he was even recording my phone calls. Rather than making me want to come back to him, these behaviors made me more and more convinced that I had made the right decision by moving out. Being away from him, along with seeing a wise counselor, gave me clarity, and soon I knew, or I accepted, that we needed to get a divorce. But we were still trying to run our businesses together. We had been meeting with a counselor to work out a separation plan, but David wouldn't budge on anything. He wanted 100% custody of the kids, full ownership of both the house and the business. 
He blamed me totally for all the problems we had because I had, quote, abandoned him, and he wanted to punish me. David controlled all the finances, which I know now is another form of abuse, financial abuse. Um, he would give me money as long as he felt there was a chance I would come back. But I knew when I tried to file for divorce, all hell was going to break loose, and I felt really stuck. So in Christmas 1992, I sent out a single mother Christmas card with a picture of me and the kids. I think I have a picture of it. Um, along with an honest letter telling them about our separation. David found out and became extremely upset. I think he might have finally realized I wasn't coming back. On New Year's Eve 1992, David took over-the-counter sleeping pills in a supposed effort to kill himself. I didn't take it seriously, thinking it was just one more dramatic attempt to try to get me to come back. However, I did insist he see a psychiatrist and to be cleared before coming back to work and seeing the kids, and he had to go through several doctors to find one who would agree that he was competent to come back to work. Most of them thought he should be hospitalized. But during the time that David was out of the office, I was finally able to get access to our finances and talk to an attorney and file for divorce. This really sent David off an emotional cliff. On Friday, January 22, 1993, David left the boys at the house by themselves and broke into my apartment. He told me later that he planned to lie in wait for me to try to catch me with another man, but he didn't have time to get hidden, and when I came into the apartment, he left through the window. He called me when he got back to the house, crying hysterically, saying, come get the boys, I want them to be safe. When I drove over to pick the kids up, David met me in the driveway and tried to convince me to come inside. I felt like God was saying, almost in an audible voice, do not go in there. Oh, I made David bring the boys to the car, and as we were driving off, David pleaded with me to give him a hug. I yelled, no, I'm furious at you, and drove off. I didn't know this would be the last time I would see him alive. The next day, Saturday, I ran errands for Skylar's fifth birthday, and several of Skylar's friends came to spend the night. I didn't realize until later that our counselor had been calling, leaving messages on our answering machine, this was before cell phones, trying to warn me that she thought David was planning a murder-suicide with the boys and me. About 10 p.m. Saturday night, David called me. He was calm and rational, and even a little upbeat. He apologized for what had happened the day before and told me he had finally decided to check himself into a hospital to get help. He asked if he could speak to the boys, and I said no, because they were busy playing. They were still upset about his behavior the day before. Later, I had to work through the guilt of that, not letting him talk to them, but I still think I made the right decision. David told me he had been up to our office and he'd put everything in order, leaving me instructions for running the businesses in his absence. He said, the only thing I'm worried about is missing Skylar's birthday. I assured him that Skylar would be fine. I would just tell him his dad was sick and he would understand. Little did I know we were talking in code. I had just unintentionally given David permission to kill himself. I hung up the phone, feeling encouraged that David was going to get better. David hung up the phone, walked down to the golf course near our house, sat down by a tree, and fired a bullet into his heart. His body was found by the groundskeeper the next morning. David left the boys notes telling them that he loved them and that what he did was not their fault. On the other hand, he left me tapes playing sad love songs and a letter telling me, among other things, 
This way you can never divorce me. And as always, in his mentally ill brain, everything was my fault. My anger and guilt were almost overwhelming for a while, but as bad as it was, I also felt some relief. I didn't know David had bought a gun, and I came to realize he had planned to kill us all Friday night. I was thankful to God that our lives had been spared. David's suicide was the hardest thing I've ever had to deal with, but in a way, it was a gift. I got my life back. One of my sons said just a few years ago, they're both in their 30s now, Mom, I think Dad thought he was doing us a favor when he killed himself. And you know what's really sad is he kind of was, if he wasn't going to get better. But getting my life back, there was no more stalking, no more fear. I still had lots of anger, guilt, and grief to work through, and I experienced symptoms of post-traumatic stress. But I sought out and received excellent help from professionals and support groups that helped my sons and me get through all of this, all the complicated after effects. But most importantly, for the first time in 20 years, I started going to church again. Church became a place of comfort and joy where I weekly refreshed my spirit and found spiritual fulfillment. But my crises weren't quite over. David's death had left me with a financial nightmare as well as an emotional one. And I had made poor financial decisions along the way. In the fall of 1999, I was horrified to have a knock on my door and be arrested for some old uh, insufficient funds checks. And I had to endure 10 long days in jail. Gave me a passion for doing prison ministry later. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing could have prepared me for this horrible, humiliating experience. But when the metal door clanged shut behind me and I found myself sitting on the hard top bunk alone wearing a prison jumpsuit, feeling worthless and hopeless, sick with worry about my children, I was not really alone. God was with me in that cell. Never have I been sure of God's presence and felt it as powerfully as I did then. God's comforting spirit enveloped me, assuring me that I was loved, I was safe, and that God would never leave me. I came to know God for the first time as a personal presence and as the great comforter. Over the following days, I thought, cried, wrote, and prayed constantly. I didn't realize until later, when I started doing recovery ministry, that I was going through the 12 steps in that jail cell, admitting my powerlessness and that my life had become unmanageable, step one, believing a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, turning my life and will over to God, doing a fearless moral inventory of my life, admitting the exact nature of my wrongs, and being ready to have God remove my defects of character and asking God to do that. Those are the first seven steps. I kept working on the other ones in the weeks that followed, even though I didn't even know what the 12 steps were at this time. (laughs) But I started to see a new vision for my life. I realized that with my psychology degree and my desire to help people, combined with my life experiences now that I hadn't had in my 20s, um, and my emerging spiritual beliefs that God could use me to help others. So when I left that jail, I knew I was being called by God. I could clearly see how to merge my early life dreams with my present reality. I saw that God was the missing piece of the puzzle that I didn't have in my 20s when I got my psychology degree. 
To truly help people, I needed to help them find God in the midst of their deepest problems and greatest weaknesses, as I was finally doing. This is when I found my life verse that we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 2.4. And as time went on, I further clarified that God's call in my life was to ministry, not just counseling. So in 2010, after seven and a half years of seminary, I was on the slow plan. <laughs> I was working full-time nights at law firms. I received my Master of Divinity with an emphasis in pastoral care. And my first appointment was to Highland Park United Methodist, where I served seven and a half years as an associate pastor in congregational care. I know there's something about that seven and a half years. I don't know. So while I was at Highland Park, that's a picture of me there, I provided care for people going through grief and divorce, and I was asked to start a Celebrate Recovery program. As part of the job uh, description for being the ministry leader for CR, I was required to go through a step study, and this is when I realized the power of the 12 steps and saw how my own recovery had followed the same systemized process. I already loved support groups, but Celebrate Recovery became to me the ultimate support group because you literally can work on anything, any issues. Um, but I also love Celebrate Recovery because it keeps me close to God and to my own brokenness and allows me um, to be a part of re wonderful recovery ministry. Uh, Richard Rohr has written a beautiful book called Breathing Underwater, and I highly recommend it. You've probably heard it recommended by others here. But he basically talks about how church should be like the 12 steps, where we don't come all clean and perfect and um, holy, but we come with all our messes, all our hang-ups, all our addictions, all our hurts, and we're real, we're authentic. That's what church should be. I think that's what Crosswalk is. Amen? <laughs> um, so leaving my marriages, especially my abusive second husband, took tremendous courage, and it almost cost me my life. I, I counted later that I really could have died three times in that marriage to David um, by his physical abuse, by contracting HIV, or by being murdered in the final act. But facing my fears and overcoming them helped build my character. And most importantly, I learned how to love myself. That is the cure for codependency, self-love. Jesus said, love others as you love yourself, as you love yourself. That last part is important. You can't just skip over it like I tried to for so long. I've made so many mistakes in my life, so many I haven't shared. <laughs> that would be another several hours. <laughs> and I'm still a work in progress, but God has redeemed my life. I feel like the woman in Luke 7:45 who poured her costly perfume on Jesus' feet. Jesus said of her, she loves much because she has been forgiven much. I also identify with the Apostle Paul, believing as he did that God calls us because of our weaknesses and brokenness to show God's power of transformation. 2 Corinthians 12.9 relates God's message to Paul that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What a relief. <laughs> Which brings me to today, the new me, the lover's lane me. I think I have a picture. Um, my ministry at Lover's Lane. Although it's still hard for me to talk about my dysfunctional marriages and my jail experience, I do so so others can see that only God could have brought me to where I am now. As I minister to others, I have to be humble because it's nothing I earned or deserved. My only part was to finally stop trying to run my life myself and surrender it to God. By God's grace, my life is full and blessed. 
Thank you, God. <laughs> uh, now I'll end with a few more pictures to show you what my life looks like now. <laughs> Those are my lovely sons, and, and with their, one of their favorite Christmas presents, the giant tigers. That was the giant tiger Christmas. <laughs> This is me with my granddaughter. The first moment I saw her, and she smiled at me. Nothing, nothing can beat that. And a couple more. Uh, this is Casey, my oldest, with his daughter. And she wanted Daddy to get the butterfly face, not Mommy. <laughs> and I love, my sons have become so healthy. And, and he's such a good father. I don't know how. He had one father that left and one father that killed himself. But he is a wonderful father. And then here I am with my granddaughter again. The one on the right just most recently when I helped her set up her little snowman Christmas tree. From, from She calls me Yaya. <laughs> so... I feel like I'm living such a wonderful and blessed life. I feel particularly blessed to be a part of Lover's Lane and a part of Crosswalk. So now I'd like to close by reading a quote from Mary Morrissey about evangelism. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, evangelism? Wait a minute. We're not talking about evangelism. I could never knock on somebody's door. I could never try to make someone into a Christian. Me neither. That's obnoxious. (laughs) And... um, High-pressure, fear-based evangelism doesn't work anyway. The studies have shown it doesn't work. But we can all tell our stories to people we care about. That's evangelism. I invite you as you leave here today to think about ways you can tell your story and to think about people in your life who need to hear it. Here's the quote. When we have a transcendent experience of God, whether it is born of a despairing cry for help, as in my case, or from a single moment of sheer beauty. We sometimes enter into an evangelistic phase, and we think we should go tell other people what they need to do and be. But there's a difference between telling other people what they need and sharing our experience. Sharing our experience gives others a handle to the door of their own experience. Sharing what is happening in our lives becomes an open door to other people who want to walk through that doorway themselves. Let someone know today the difference that God's love has made in your life. Let us pray. God, thank you for recovery. Thank you for being a God of second chances and for using broken people to be your ministers. Thank you for your comfort and for allowing us to comfort others as we have been comforted by you. Now we ask you to make us into open doors for others by finding ways to share with them the difference your love has made in our lives. Amen.